Hey there, Zach here. Uh, Just a heads up, in this episode, we're going to be talking about psychosis, schizophrenia, hallucinations, and how we've encountered them in the media, in our religious traditions, and in our own lives. As Kendra says in this episode, being a human is weird and complicated, and I want to acknowledge up front that even though we are trying our best to be sensitive to all experiences of humanity, we will likely fall short. So if you'd like to head over to the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group, we'd love to hear about how you have experienced schizophrenia, psychotic breaks, hallucinations, or have interacted with those who have. Are there people in our scriptures who can help us to see these disorders in a new light? Let's talk about it. Well, let's talk about it in about an hour or so. Listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And if my life were a movie, I would hire Paul Rudd to play me. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And if anyone could play me, I'd uh, probably pick Ed Helms. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And if I have someone play me in a movie, I'm going to ask Sir Patrick Stewart, because he's just the best. Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. And if I had to get someone to play me in a movie, it would be Katherine Hahn. Mm. I'm trying to remember who that is. Uh, She plays... Jen Barkley in Parks and Rec. She uh, most recently, what I saw her in, she's um, the witch Agatha. WandaVision. Agatha? Oh, yeah. WandaVision. Agatha. Yeah, she is. It was mm-hmm. Agatha the whole time. Agatha yeah. all along. Also, a young, uh, a, a young Laura Dern, I think, would, would be great as Kendra. Oh, yeah. People have said that to me, too. A, a, I can see a that. Young Laura Dern or like Laura Dern's daughter or something. I don't know. Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. If someone were to play me in a movie, I think it would be Statler of Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> You're having a Muppet play you? You bet I am. That's perfect. It actually <laughs> works. <laughs> I'm ashamed oh, sorry. that I don't really know who the Muppets, <gasps> like specific Muppets are. I know who the Muppets are, but I don't know who Statler, Statler is. One I of the two who heckles. Besides, like Miss Piggy. Yeah, no, he's, oh, he's one of the two old guys tracks. who heckles. Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Usually. Yeah, I could see that. I could They're definitely see that. Yeah, that's totally you, Adam. <laughs> yeah. So today. We're continuing in our series on mental health, and we are talking about psychosis today. Woohoo! Lighthearted, <laughs> not heavy at all. Um, so um, we're talking about psychosis, but we're actually talking like more specifically about um, schizophrenia, um, and and so <clears throat> psychosis, uh, like more generally speaking, is. Uh, there, there are a lot of different ways for someone to experience a psychotic break, have a, an episode of psychosis, um, and that can look a lot of different ways. Um, but it, it like the main, the primary characteristic of psychosis is like a major break from uh, reality, and so it is, uh, you know, understandably very disturbing and very um, destabilizing of the individual who experiences psychosis. And um, psychosis, different disorders of psychosis uh, are are often like not very well mis- uh, not very well understood. and and so that makes them both kind of, uh, like frustrating and also intriguing to um, clinicians and like to the popular imagination. There's just like something about, you know, psychotic disorders that are, um, you know, the way that they get represented in in film and in TV. Um, they are usually portrayed to be, uh, 
you know, a little a little scary, like not scary from the inside of like the person who has experienced the psychotic break, because obviously that's frightening, but also frightening to people on the outside watching what's happening because it's hard to understand or like uh, connect with someone who has a break from reality. And and how do you how do you care for a person or include a person um, who is just seemingly in like a totally different dimension of time and space in a lot of ways than than what you uh, are experiencing in in your more like grounded reality. Um, so that's generally like what psychosis is. But to talk more specifically about um, schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia is, again, like we we understand more about it like we're learning more and more but it's there's still a lot that we don't know um for example we don't we don't really understand like what causes schizophrenia um we can make some observations about schizophrenia um such as like if you have someone in your family um with schizophrenia, like if you have a parent who has schizophrenia, you have um, higher risk for developing it. But that's not necessarily indicative of it. it like it, it's not um, it's not a fact that you will have schizophrenia at some point in time. Um, and we we know you know we've observed that schizophrenia tends to happen roughly equally um between uh women and men um we you know we know that like kind of stereotypes of schizophrenics are that they're dangerous and violent um but you know we have observed that that's actually not true um sure like anyone can can be violent or aggressive but that is not uh that's not a general or fair characteristic of schizophrenic people um, and, uh, schizophrenia, there's also different types. So like, I guess I should, you know, maybe say like what exactly this is. Cause you know, we have, again, I think people probably have associations of, of what it is, um, from like media representations, but, um, it's, it's a brain disorder again, not entirely sure like what's going on in the brain, but a brain disorder that, um, can create a lot of really disturbing symptoms, um, such as hallucinations, which can be visual hallucinations or auditory, uh, like sound hallucinations. Um, it can make people delusional. Um, so, you know, believing in something very adamantly that is just not true. Um, so, you know, some delusions might, might look something like, um, like uh, someone who's delusional might think that they are like a savior of some kind and they have to like save the world. And they might think that like the FBI is sending the messages that are about information that only they would know because they are destined to like save the universe. Like really, you know, some of these delusions can be very grand um, delusional thinking. Um, other uh, symptoms uh, could be like trouble just thinking, concentrating, or communicating. Um, there are a lot of, you know, especially people who work with schizophrenics in a clinical capacity will tell stories about, you know, speaking to someone who's schizophrenic, who has symptoms that disturb communication. They might just like string a bunch of words together, but those words don't actually make any sense whatsoever. Like there's not a comprehensible sentence there but something is happening in in the in the brain like the communication pathways where whatever that person may or may not want to say it just doesn't come out and likewise um, someone who's schizophrenic who is listening to another person talk they may hear different words than the words that are actually coming out of that person's mouth <clears throat> and so that's another again just like disturbance that is a break with reality that they don't have control over and is it's it just makes it very difficult to navigate like what should otherwise be pretty mundane normal experiences um, for people um, other other symptoms are just like a general general flat 
affect or, you know, a, a lack of expression, a sluggishness that just, um, you know, is is pretty severe. And so there are like, there's, as you can see, there's like this constellation of symptoms that uh, can appear um, you know, usually people will have like more than one of these symptoms. Um, but the ones that are especially disturbing are um, typically the ones that are the hallucination or delusional thinking type of symptoms. Um, and hallucinations, you know, whether they're visual or auditory, those are hard, obviously, because it's 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 difficult to distinguish what is real and what is not real. And so those are um, especially, uh, you know, a lot of researchers are intrigued by the way that people who are schizophrenic uh, sort of interpret their hallucinations. Um, and it's just kind of this really distinct, like qualitatively different kind of symptom than the like flat affect, which is still troubling and disturbing in its own way. But um, so there's just something to note there about like these this constellation of symptoms that schizophrenics can um can experience collectively like why this is uh, disturbing like it's it's clear why that's disturbing the break from reality but what we're talking about mostly today are um, hallucinations and and you know maybe some delusions too but especially um, auditory hallucinations in the sound of hearing voices um, and and so to say something just about like hearing voices that can that can happen in a, a couple of ways. So, um, for example, you may hear uh, a voice, maybe one person is saying something, but in like your schizophrenic mindset, you may hear uh, that voice sounds like it's coming from multiple people. Like there's kind of a legion of something talking at you, but maybe you're having a conversation with one person. I mentioned already that, you know, uh, another example is hearing words that are not actually coming out of the person's mouth and they're saying something totally different. Um, uh, another another way of hearing voices is just noises in the environment that kind of morph into what sound like voices. And so that can lead to a lot of experiences of whispering and, you know, kind of chatter in the distance that can't quite make out what the voices are, but it sounds like voices. And so um, I, there's, you know, an example of like a car sort of whooshing by down the street and the sound of the car whooshing by that kind of like car whoosh transforms into a, what sounds like a voice. Um, so voices, wherever, whatever stimuli in the environment or like in that person's head that's creating the voice, um, you know, it, it may or may not be clear like there are ways that um schizophrenic people learn to manage um those symptoms and you know i i think my understanding is that some people can identify like certain things as being real or not real but sometimes it's hard especially i would imagine if you are like just discovering that you are schizophrenic um it it there's no there's no complete cure for schizophrenia you can manage symptoms with antipsychotic medication but it's 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 disturbing <laughs> so um this is this is uh this kind of um brain disorder uh is again it there's something that's just it's so severe in its transformation of a person's everyday experience that a lot of researchers and and people have this interest in this the intersection between something like schizophrenia and a person's like experiences of religion and spirituality um and that's not always relevant for like particular people um but but it is something that comes up and there is um there are a lot of you know, social scientists, especially like psychologists, anthropologists, um, and, you know, other, other clinicians who are like asking these kinds of questions about like what, what this intersection could be. Um, and, and, 
to say, uh, oh, one more thing. Also, that like schizophrenia sometimes is um, mistaken for like multiple personality disorder, um, which is also known, I think, maybe more accurate accurately now as dissociative dissociative identity disorder. So, you know, those are also like their own kind of like disturbing, uh, you know, experience of the world break from reality. But that's they're distinct um, from uh, schizophrenia, what we're talking about. So what is the intersection between uh, something like schizophrenia, psychosis with uh, religious or spiritual experiences? So uh, there for one, there's a lot of people who ask this really interesting question about the history of um, shamanism and people in in various cultures just 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 code like what we would call diseases or disorders. It's important to realize that, you know, that uh, the the way that people experience not just schizophrenia, but a number of different conditions um there are there's a cultural element in the way we uh like code others and our own experiences with these disorders and diseases and schizophrenia is no different so in in the in western countries like in the united states in particular it is uh, a lot more common for people uh to experience schizophrenia in themselves as like madness there people are much more willing and immediate in their response to say like this is bad these voices that i'm hearing if they have auditory hallucinations um they are disturbing me they are um frightening me they are torturing me and there's a a, generally speaking a negative experience with auditory hallucinations and and people also typically um, you know, just the the way that we talk about something like schizophrenia, people are more likely to use the term schizophrenia as like a category, like a word that describes this collection of symptoms that we see as disordered. And they're, you know, the solution is um, antipsychotic medications or like being um, put in a mental a mental institution and you know various other clinical ways of managing something like schizophrenia and so people in the U.S. Um, when when researchers have like interviewed people uh, with schizophrenia there's this language around it that's much there's just much more negative experiences with voices um, and 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 what people find in other uh, countries and other like cultural settings is it's not that people don't ever talk about schizophrenia or that they don't ever feel afraid of their hallucinations, but um, there's something pretty distinct about the contexts of other other cultures from the U.S. context in which there's more um, flexibility in how other cultures sort of manage something like schizophrenia. And so there's um, an example of a, a group of researchers who kind of compared uh, three different groups of schizophrenics in um, in the U.S., in India, and in Ghana. And what they found was uh, the U.S. kind of fit that characteristic of people describing a negative relationship with their hallucinations. But when they looked at the the samples in um, Ghana and in India, uh, they found that people were much more likely to describe the voices they were hearing as providing guidance. Um, and sometimes people would say, um, you know, sometimes like in India, there were a couple of people who had hallucinations of like a particular Hindu god, or um, you know, maybe of like. A family member or like a famous person they'd read about in a magazine, like different manifestations of visual and auditory hallucinations that they instead of, you know, they maybe were frightening at first, but over time they started to almost rely on them. Like these voices actually help me understand and remind me what I should do to be a good person. Um, and in other instances, um, you know, they're like in the in the um, India and Ghana samples in particular, uh, people might 
feel like a kinship with those voices, um, that maybe there's like family members appearing in those hallucinations that are, again, giving guidance and providing a sense of, um, I mean, I don't know if like comfort is the right word here, but there was less fear and like revulsion at those voices. And there was a place kind of created in the mind of these people. Um, and so, you know, they they realized that what they were experiencing was unusual compared to others, but there was still a coding of those experiences as something that was either instructive or, or supernatural. Um, definitely a relationship between voices and um, supernatural deities or or demons um, that's not uncommon and you know that again it's not that people in the U.S. like would never um, code their experiences as supernatural or or demonic or from God in some way but this was um this seemed to be a little more acceptable and common in in the samples from India and Ghana and and so this is just an interesting like comparison and I think is relevant to this broader question that other researchers are, are looking into of like, is shamanism, is there a connection between shamanism and um, something like psychotic conditions like schizophrenia, where you learn how to manage voices and and symptoms that you're experiencing that are different from everyone else. And instead of being in a mental institution, you are now sort of elevated into a into this particular role in a society where you can still interact and function in a community by sharing uh, what you have that no one else has. And it's a way um, there's, you know, it's a it's it's a way of thinking about something like schizophrenia that's that kind of normalizes it or like maybe not normalizes it, but it provides a place so that a person doesn't need to necessarily be like isolated or feel like they are like totally insane. Um, and it's just really different and interesting that this is like this is the an interesting link between something like schizophrenia, these like psychotic disorders and, um, you know, religious or spiritual interpretations of those disorders to be sort of functional for a community. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's what I, you know, just want to inter- introduce here. So like, how does that, how does that land for any of, any of y'all and, um, what do you, what other thoughts do you have? Like, what do you have any experience? Do you know anyone with schizophrenia? Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. So thank you for. Um, also, sorry, I know I talked for a long time. <laughs> You're good. You're good. Um, it's all good. Thank you for giving us this perspective. Um, and I really like the interdisciplinary overview. Um, I obviously am in the culture of America. So those that I know that have schizophrenia um, have definitely experienced it in that aggressive and fear-based place. And it was lovely to read about these places in India. I, I, I was really fond of the one from India where they were saying that this is really, I interpreted it as protective and guiding, um, very um, almost nurturing and parental, which is very different than people that I that I know with schizophrenia here that um, it's very fear-based um, and it's it's daunting. Mm. It's not just the break from reality that's scary, which I think would be across cultures, um, but it's the how they're experiencing um, the the auditory. I'm not going to say just voices, but the auditory sounds. Right. Well, that's redundant. Um, <laughs> what they are experiencing from sound is scary. Um, and we don't, we tend to, our society tends to to shun that, to shun the differences. Um, our society tends to think that if you, if you have this break, you're broken. 
And that was something that that has really stuck with me and trying to figure out how to encourage people to to acknowledge that they're not broken um, has been something that we as a so, as a society and culture can fix, I think, even if the disease itself, um, you know, we can't. So my my first experience with this even at, with schizophrenia at all um, came from the movie uh, Beautiful Mind um, about the mathematician John Nash, um, played by Russell Crowe, who has a roommate that he lives with that assumes that everyone knows this roommate for years until he discovers that this is not a real person and he's in his mind and there's this whole world and then he discovers he's got all these conspiracy theories and it's it, it becomes this sort of thriller um, and that is how I imagined schizophrenia to be that um, there are people out there who just imagine that there are people with them at all times and how terrifying that was. And, and they kind of, there was a, I think there's a scene in there where he, he does hurt someone. Um, and it's kind of like, this guy is a danger, but mm -hmm. I more just lived for years terrified that this was actually happening to me and that the people that I knew, like I, I would be like, is this person real or am I imagining them? Am I having a psychotic break or is this person real? Can you see this person? And it made me really paranoid. Um, and now that I'm, I'm, I'm a bit older and I realize that that's not actually how it works and that's just how it works in Hollywood and that it's more like um, a lot of these voices are internal and people kind of understand that. I, I've seen it everywhere. I, in, in, in my religious world, we tend to attract people who hear voices. And I, I get that all the time now. It's like, um, I heard a voice from God saying this. And it's usually something about how this person is uniquely qualified to save something or do something really important or dramatic. And then, then it's left up to me to decide if that is the voice of God or the voice of a psychosis or both or neither. And I feel woefully unqualified to do that in for the most part hmm. um i i would second i would second that you are woefully unqualified uh, thanks rachel you're welcome <laughs> you're welcome i think i think um clergy are often the first people to to recognize that there could be something amiss and that's our job and then to pass it along to the people that can go oh no you're just having a faith experience or oh wow you're really having a psychotic break Right. And that we're the first persons to acknowledge that, yes, you can hear these voices. And sometimes it's um, a natural faith thing. And sometimes it's um, a natural brain disorder thing. But I'm just 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 reaffirming that you are willfully unqualified, as am I, as are most clergy. So sorry. Oh. <laughs> no offense. Yeah, I think that's a good point, though, about uh, and and yeah, it makes sense that clergy are in many cases like the the first people to encounter um people in which it's hard to tell what's happening because there's some there's the shared language of um people who are experiencing hallucinations whether they're like specifically schizophrenic or or something else saying like god said this to me um and how to distinguish that from other people who um, you know, it, it might be unclear if they have something going on in terms of a brain disorder, but that's also just like common parlance to talk about like faith experiences or, you know, um, like there's there's a whole book, actually one of the researchers who um, ha participated in interviews with schizophrenic people, she also wrote a book uh, about um evangelical faith and the language of like talking to God. And so that, you know, just like the recognition that there's shared language there. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, typically I think it's, it's straightforward to tell when, like what the difference is, but not always. And uh, I think that Rachel and Zach are, um, you know, uh, right that it's, it's clergy who have to kind of 
make that first call sometimes. Well, so here's an example. Um, there's an elder at the church um, who uh, one day showed up to a worship service um, stark naked and ran around the parking lot um, yelling about how this church had become corrupt and how the pastor was in in league with the devil and was and that the elder board was siphoning money and we used to run around every day every Sunday morning when people showed up would show up naked streak through the parking lot and yell about how uh, this church was going to hell and did it for three years okay so that didn't actually happen but it happened in Isaiah chapter 20. And when Isaiah does it in Isaiah chapter 20, it's like, wow, this prophetic image that God told him to remove thy sackcloth and thy shoes and to even expose thy buttocks for for unto three years to shame the Egyptians as he went through the towns uh, prophesying to the people. And that sounds holy and righteous, but if somebody did that now, we'd be like, this man has a psychotic break and he needs to be hospitalized. And uh, should we have hospitalized Isaiah? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. No. I, I. I. I'm. I'm being totally serious. I mean, I. I think that the hospitalization of people that have mental disorders or challenges, we need to fix that system. But the concept that Isaiah probably had some sort of mental illness, absolutely. I think our, the Hebrew Bible, at least, I can't really speak to the Christian Bible as thoroughly. Um, really examples all the human conditions, and Isaiah is one of those that examples uh, schizophrenia. Right? Just like when we talked about uh, depression, and we can see it in, in, in anxiety. Like I believe that the Hebrew Bible absolutely gives us reference to most of the um, brain diseases that we are uncomfortable with to this day. So, yes, I think he should have been somehow positively instant. So then is Isaiah hearing the voice of God or the voice of Isaiah? And if by hospitalizing him and treating his condition, are we then stopping prophecy? Asking those tough questions. That's what we're here for. (laughs) I, I think it's who's listening. Right. I think that if a person like Isaiah, minus the modesty issues, because let's remember that they had a very different understanding of being clothed or not clothed than we do in our semi-Puritan American culture. Um, You know, barring that piece, if someone's listening and it makes sense then yeah, that person can still be a prophet. And whether or not that is the voice of God that Isaiah is hearing in actuality or the presumption of Isaiah that it is the voice of God, who Isaiah is speaking to is hearing Isaiah as a prophet. And they're the ones that are listening or not listening. And I think we can absolutely have people that are prophetic nowadays. And it's really the difference of... You know, where is it God or is it an understanding of God? And does that even matter? So, yeah, I I, I think yes. Hmm. It's that we have gone deaf to people that are trying to show us, show us things about our society that we don't want to hear. I was going to um, echo something similar that you said, Rachel, was like the question of, is it God or is it an internal voice that yeah, like, does that matter for one, the person who is hearing the voice, but also does that matter for people who are listening to the person? (laughs) And for some people that will matter and for some people that won't. And so I think whether like the authority of the, the, or the origin of the voice um, may affect the like interpretation of the importance of what is being said um, and that just kind of kind of depends what's happening, I think, as to whether it's, um, you know, whether one, it, it depends on the context and the content of what is being said as to whether I, for example, would think that person needs to be institutionalized or 
you know, if I would maybe be likely to to call them something like a prophet or a guide uh, in like a cultural moment. I think there it's just like the kinds of voices people hear or claim to hear are so varied. <laughs> like there are absolutely some voices that I do not want <laughs> to listen to and that I do not want you to have to listen to, you know? So it's like, are you telling me to like go jump off a bridge or are you telling me that like society is corrupt? Because those are both examples of things that people can hear when they're hearing voices and claiming that it's coming from God or, you know, the devil or whatever. But, you know, it's, it has the interpretation of what to do with that information is contingent upon the community, um, cultural norms, um, a bunch of things. And so it makes it very tricky to kind of, I think, generalize about like how to respond to those voices from the outside. And also like recognizing, I, I watched a an interview one time with a person who's schizophrenic and uh, the interviewer was asking her questions and started asking her questions about like the hallucinations and sh- she had visual hallucinations. And so the interviewer started to say like, do you see the hallucinations right now? And where are they in the room? And she said, I'm actually not going to answer those questions because I I don't like to tell people where the hallucinations are in the room because when real people start interacting with my hallucinations, it makes it difficult for me to tell what is real and not real. Hmm. Hmm. And so I thought that was really, really interesting too, just like from, from that, like another perspective of how, how to deal with what is happening. Yeah. So, you know, um, to echo what, Zach's at the beginning, one of my first experiences with schizophrenia was the movie, a beautiful mind. Um, and, and, you know, I loved that movie. And I, as we were Kendra, as you were talking, um, I had looked it up and, um, was, I did not realize that when the movie came out, that it was actually celebrated by some in the mental health community, um, that it had a somewhat accurate portrayal of schizophrenia. It, not that they didn't take liberties, but that it actually did somewhat of a decent job. Um, but I also remember when that movie came out, it was a time when I was struggling with medication for my depression. And when I saw that movie and saw that the, you know, John Nash, according to the movie was able to overcome some of his, um, you know, issues with schizophrenia by sheer will that I, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, if that's possible, why couldn't I? And so I remember actually having those conversations with my counselor at the time. And she was saying that even though the movie did a somewhat decent job, that there was a lot of pushback on that part of the film. And that's what the thing I read too, um, was that that's not accurate at all. Like it, that's not how it works. And so, um, so that was one thing, but the other thing too, when we're talking about voices, you know, just kept made me, making me think about like, who is it that determines that whatever voice someone's listening to is right or wrong, right? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, how is it that that's determined that, okay, this, this person clearly has a, um, a, a mental health disease. They need to be hospitalized versus not. So, because if, you know, there are a lot of people who say that I, that they speak to God, right? It's whether and or not God speaks commu- back. <laughs> right. But then also, too, if they say that they believe this, that God is speaking to them, mm-hmm. is that an example of schizophrenia or not? So if I may jump in here, um, one of the um, I'm going to give a quick anecdote. There's a person that I knew that was taking a psychological test. And part of the psychological test was um uh, on a on a form, like on an actual piece of paper. This is before before computers. So on an actual piece of paper, and this person was smart enough to fool the test and gave all of the answers to indicate that this person had um, a psychotic schizophrenia. And then the 
the people that were evaluating this test looked at it and went, while it's true you showed us this, your paper is pristine. There were no erasures. There were no, it didn't get torn up. The paper itself was perfectly fine. So this person was able to trick the system, but the challenge is it's not just a checkbox. So when we're talking about people that have hallucinations, visual or auditory, I see things. I can imagine something or someone sitting right here in my office. I can see them in my mind's eye right here. Right? I, I can visual. Am I hallucinating that? Am I hearing that? One of the things that I think um, is challenging that um, we forget is people that have not had this break in reality is in conversation with the person that is either currently going through or has had or is off medication or whatever the situation might be. The flow of conversation is not the way that we understand it. So when I read Isaiah or I read some of these other people that go, hmm, there's something amiss here, they're still understandable. A people that I have interacted with, which at this point, you know, given that I'm a small town clergy, it, you know, I, I, we're numbering a couple of dozen people that I've, I've interacted with that have this particular diagnosis. You cannot follow their thoughts. It is a thought here, a thought there. It is all over the board, and they think that they are making perfect sense. Um, and that's the break where there's a major disconnect, not just in the delusions of grandeur. Like I, one of the articles that we'll link in in today's show notes has this idea um, of John Hood, I believe his last name was, who's who's talking about this. And then he thinks that he's a shaman. And he, then he thinks that he's going to, that he's married to two African princesses and he's going to go live with them. And it's one sentence to another sentence. And the listener has no ability to follow these trains of thought. And we forget that. Um, so a beautiful mind doesn't necessarily example that the other movie, The Soloist, um, about, I think his name was Nathaniel Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S, um, that has a little bit better understanding of the challenges of, from the, the person who is, who's, has this um, illness about them, what they really go through. Um, so I just want to add that, that, yes, we hear God, and if someone says, oh, you know, God, talk to me. But God made perfect sense to the listener. <laughs> and they're saying, here's what God told me to do. And how is, you know, have a great day. And I hope you have. And it, 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 it's cohesive. I think those yeah. are clues. So, and I just want to follow up on what Rachel said also that um, just real quick that like hallucinations, that like having a hallucination is not an automatic indicator that like you're schizophrenic, that some of the other um, like conditions in which you might have hallucinations are things like Parkinson's disease, which mm. I didn't realize like hallucinations were part of that until recently. Um, brain tumors, um, you know, sometimes like Alzheimer's, like there are different like epilepsy stuff 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 happens in the brain and so there's other other like you know we talked in the beginning about the constellation of symptoms and so that's just like something to keep in mind too but, Adam. Well, i was gonna say it seems like that idea of an integrated epistemic frame is really important right so like if the pieces are integrated into a singular or cohesive worldview then you have one sort of set of things it's this moment where they no longer can be held together, but they have to be attended to simultaneously. That that's this like this break that occurs. So I can talk to God, but if it but if it integrates with the way in which that I experience the world, you know, totally good. So then religion offers that sort of uh, scaffolding for these sorts of experiences then uh, pretty regularly. I'm thinking of like Joan of Arc. If she were in a different sort of a situation, um, would her 
her visions, her voices have said different things if she were in South India instead of in France. Or is God speaking directly to Joan of Arc and we are trying to um, diagnose the work of the Holy Spirit and um, trying to medicate away modern-day prophecy and the presence of a living and terrifying and powerful God. I don't like that dichotomy at all. I know you don't. You don't love dichotomies at all. <laughs> that feels like a false, I asked this. That feels like a false dichotomy. This is... So this is the the tension that goes on inside of my head because I was in 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 my developmental years w- was told that that a lot of these antipsychotic medications are there to suppress um, actual experiences with the supernatural because there are some people in the world who are more sensitive to the presence of the supernatural, both good and evil. And the antipsychotics then suppress those natural abilities. Think like the first half of Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. right? That, that kind of uh, limiting factor because um, we can't handle the, the spiritual world in the modern, modern world because we have to be able to explain it and domesticate it and understand it in order to, for it to exist. And so that, 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 I still have that in there. And, and now I think, I'm thinking more about like positive mental health and how would you like to live? And we're understanding more about how the brain works. We don't quite understand how this works. And I want to just have space open for that as a possibility. But I don't quite know what to do with it. I don't. I don't want that space open. <laughs> oh, but Adam, so many of our religious traditions are based Straight on up. revelation, are based on divine revelations <laughs> in stories <laughs> so, and in histories that have been passed down to us. And if those divine revelations happen today, we would label them as psychotic breaks. I, I, I mean, if you just started talking to a bush, don't you think that we would say you're having a psychotic break? No, they'd say I'm walking around campus, but... Like, like <laughs> what I would also fight, fight, fight moment. Point fight out, moment. right? It's it, it's not actually the scientific side of this that bothers me, right? It's actually the theological side where I want to go. That's bad theology. It is a mm. bad understanding of the supernatural. Okay, hit me with it. So yeah, you gotta un- unravel that one. I would argue that all revelation is contextual, insofar as it is a mode of communication. So it is, of course, going to change depending on where and when and how that revelation occurs. Because the supernatural isn't something separate from the natural, as if it is an other realm that has its own structure of things from which it originates. It is something layered over the natural, you know, what supernatural actually means, on top of the natural. So it's just a deficient theological understanding as far as I'm concerned. So uh, there's in, in also I think that like Adam's talking about a naturalist interpretation of revelation and Zach is talking about a supernaturalist right, but, interpretation. But his supernaturalist version revelation. is bad. It's a bad understanding of supernatural. Oh, I mean, I, I'm with Adam here, but uh, just to like describe what the different <laughs> So there's two different types of, of revelation that we often talk about. Natural revelation, special revelation. Natural revelation being the things that you can deduce on your own from the laws of the universe and your experience of being a human on this planet. Um, Special revelation are those times that um, God speaks to a person and tells them a specific thing. Right. Like go set my set my people free. Like that's that's a special revelation. Um, Jesus coming and and uh, saying, hey, God told me this thing and I want you to know it. That's special revelation. And I'm talking about the special revelation, not the natural. Yeah, I'm still on board. But special revelation is still contextually located. Absolutely. Period. So it's. It's going to change no matter where it is that it's spoken to. It, it's only if you treat special revelation as though the supernatural othering world from which it comes is so overwhelming that it completely mutes the expectation of the receptive hearer, 
in such a way that that context no longer matters, that it creates a break with the actual place in which it is received. And I want to go, that's not communication anymore. That's not even revelation anymore, right? Insofar as revealing is supposed to be a form of communicating. So to my mind, like, there's no sort of like articulation from a theological tradition that can defend that notion of special revelation on its own terms. So Paul, on his donkey, horse, I don't remember, um, is going to go do some some good old-fashioned persecuting and gets a blinding light, falls off his horse or donkey or whatever it was, and sees a vision of Jesus standing before him that says, but, Saul, but Saul, he? why do you persecute me? I mean, me? that's what Paul told us. Right. But, Acts but is, that's his experience Acts is pretty of clear it. that all he saw was a blinding light and there's no God and he's not actually an apostle. So shouldn't we just throw his stuff out? <laughs> I mean, should we Well, I didn't think guy? we were going there today, Adam. I'm just talking about just, Paul in Paul's words. Paul in Paul's words. It's a great episode. I'm so glad. Is that he really had a vision. Time. He had a light. He saw a light. He fell off his his quadruped and <laughs> hit his head and then he couldn't see for a while until he was healed by this by this fella and then he could see again. And he had this special revelation that Feels a lot like he had a seizure. Um, it fits a lot of the categories of that. And so when you explain it like that, like naturally, then you might just say, wow, he had this break. He had this uh, this seizure. He maybe had some epileptic stroke. And he then attributed it to, I must have been doing something wrong when it happened because God was punishing me. And then after the fact, put in his um, uh, theology and and that's what's happening. K- Kendra, are you raising your hand? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to jump in and say, Zach, you, you've said a couple times, like, uh, I think, like, referring to the what Adam called the dichotomy here between, like, is it revelation or psychotic break? I, I don't think that calling, like, I don't think that rejecting revelation leads immediately to describing something like the examples that you're giving as psychotic breaks. I think like another way of, of naming that without going straight to like psychotic mental disorder would be to say, like, I think the way I would describe that, um, coming from like a more, like social sciencey type framework would would be to say there's selective attention. Mm. Um, like whenever you experience different kinds of like auditory visual stimuli, um, especially in cases where there's like a religious or spiritual experience going on, there's selective attention happening where people, you know, the the selective attention you give to light, to sound, to images, it affects the way that you code and remember those experiences, which sometimes are things like, you know, prophetic visions or like whatever it is, it's not. And I think that this is like, I think this is getting at some of like what your concern is, is that it's it like, and I, I understand the concern also being about like reductionism, I think, of, of like spiritual and religious experiences. But um, I think that selective attention to our just daily experiences is just something that everyone does. Um, but especially in, you know, these cases where it's like extraordinary circumstances or experiences of certain kinds of stimuli, um, our like we we each have selective attention that is informed by cultural um you know, biases and cognitive biases, uh, you know, the way that we understand kinship, family, friends, um, spirits, minds, um, all of those, you know, cultural pieces affect the way that we attend to our experiences. And, and that's not necessarily good or bad. It's just a fact of like being human. And so that that's uh, like a third option I want to throw in there is like, Maybe revelation, maybe psychotic break, maybe selective attention, and all of those things, all three of those options um, can have meaning. And so I, I think, 
yeah, like meaning is not mutually exclusive to any of these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the um, in the the fear of reductionism, I think is where the my soul wants to push back, because if yeah. I am going to accept that an angel appeared to Mary and told her something very specific, but then immediately dismiss that an angel showed up to John Smith in my congregation because, well, he says a lot of strange things, then I need to second either second guess how I'm treating him today or how I am reading my own religious tradition. And I think I need to be honest with that. I can't have it both ways. Yeah, this this is where I think reductionism becomes a boogeyman, though. Like, it, it doesn't have to do the things that in some theological and religious circles people say it will do. I mean, that's what I'm I'm on board with that. I like reductionism is is the name of the boogeyman, but the boogeyman's not really a boogeyman. <laughs> but the boogeyman but is just a I hallucination sack. Oh man, you academics trying to <laughs> trying to dismantle the argument instead of uh, uh, instead of coming at straight at it. I'm just enjoying listening. So, you know, <laughs> I really wish I had popcorn for this conversation. No, but like reductionism, it it is, I think, the primary concern that people have when when we talk about this like religion and science intersection and people who don't who who aren't coming at these conversations out of an academic context, like like it makes sense to me why that's a concern. But I like Adam, I I don't think that that I think that the fear that people have about reductionism, my experience of that was only like an initial fear. And then like over time, mm. uh, a realization for me that like I just I still. Uh, yes, I've like changed over time in some significant ways, but I still think there's a lot of meaning in experiences and just because we like understand the way that the brain works or, you know, like the way the body works. Um, I don't think that that means we can't also uh, have this like layer of experience in human life that is profound mm. and not just meaningful, but also really profound and spiritual and you know, all the other ways that we talk about those kinds of experiences. It's just also true that it, but probably like the way that I interpret that situation, that experience, it's going to be different than, you know, the way someone else interprets it in their own framework. But I'm comfortable with that. And I, I realize that that just inherently will make some people uncomfortable. The difference in our like understanding of I guess like the ontological nature of those experiences. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think there's a, uh, I'm there with you. I'm there with you intellectually. I, I, there, I don't disagree with anything. I'll say that. Um, I think my, where I'm coming from is a, a kind of practical place in which I am on the regular in contact with people who have visions and who have uh, experiences and who are asking me to help interpret the word of God that has come to them in a vision or in a moment of rapture or in uh, this, that, or the other. And um, I think Paul says that we should discern every spirit that comes. And, you know, it's not so easy to tell if this is a spirit of light or of darkness, um, but that every vision, whether it comes from while you're reading some textbook or having some ecstatic moment of otherness and experience um, that all of those visions need to be tested against what your community holds as true and uh, what is good for human flourishing. And so I'm, I, f I feel the fear of people when, when I suggest I I'm having this experience actually right now, not like, in this moment, I'm not having an experience. I'm, I'm with somebody now who is having some, a lot of these kinds of experiences. And she is extremely frustrated at every other pastor that she's talked to because they all say, wow, it sounds like you're having uh, some mental distress. Have you seen a therapist? 
are you on your medication? Instead of meeting her in, in that space, in that common parlance of like, yeah, okay, I, I might personally think that she is having a psychotic break, but I need to communicate with her in this realm of, of the spirits. Um, as both as a common language so that we can actually get somewhere productive and also as a way of kind of intellectual honesty that I don't entirely understand the workings of the supernatural and the natural and even I don't understand how magnets work. So I don't I don't know. Maybe you are experiencing something that I'm I don't know. Um, so I, I try to stay intellectually and spiritually humble in those situations. I mean, I do understand intellectually how magnets work, but I, I don't know how they work. Kendra, do you have any final thoughts for us as we wrap up? Uh, well, I, I just wanted to say in the sharing of intellectual honesty, I, I just I, I want to say that like my academic explanation of like uh, someone saying that God told them to do whatever it is. Like I can talk about like selective attention and all of that. But if I'm talking about like, Oh, energy healing. Yeah. Mm. That <laughs> I sure I'm all no selective attention. That's just, that's just real. <laughs> so <laughs> I like, it, that's not to say that, um, it, like it's a different category of experience. Of course, like, you know, that I, I don't even know that some people would feel comfortable like comparing those two things, but just to say that it's not um, people are complicated and have <laughs> different kinds of experiences that they understand in different ways. And um, it, it's not that people who I don't I don't think it's fair to say that people who who use academic jargon and and do maybe like lean on like reductionistic ways of thinking, which I actually, I, I do not group me and Adam into that category. Maybe y'all group us into that category, but <laughs> I think that those people always have something that they don't talk about that's like personal. And that is, it is like the bottom level foundation of like their, what, what is real for them. And it's just also like a sep like a separation issue of like the academic and the personal when you're in like different settings. And I, I imagine that feels really different when you're like a clergy person. So, um, yeah, people are weird, you know, people are weird. <laughs> That's my final word. Love it. People are weird. <laughs> Great way to end it. People are weird. That should be today's title. Oh, but Adam, Adam has, Adam has yeah. a bit. That's our tagline. I got a bit. I'm super excited about this. <laughs> I shared it with Ken. Do you have a jingle? We're working on that. But so, until then, until then uh, I have I've decided to title my bit "Under the Apple Tree." In deference to the apocryphal phrase from one of the persons of my tradition, Martin Luther, who was said to have said, "Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree." I mean, in all likelihood, he didn't actually say this. The earliest you can trace it back is about 1944. It's probably a phrase from the Confessing Church trying to ensure that it continued to do things in resistance to Nazi dictatorship. Um, but, you know, it feels better when it comes from the person who's ostensibly the founder of your tradition. Um, and this gets interpreted a lot of ways, but generally what, you know, the, the sentiment was, was that even if things look like they're going to go terribly, if the world might end, you move one step at a time. So I thought, what better way to end podcasts than to rehearse the ways the world might end? <laughs> So for today, tapping into your superpower of sucking energy out of the room, done. Uh, I decide, well, it, it's one, let's be clear, there are a whole lot of people writing about the ways this would occur. Um, so I had a lot to choose from, but I decided I would go with super volcanoes today. Ooh. Um, and the idea is that, you know, because we don't actually live on a nice, stable planet, in fact, we live on like rafts of rock floating over molten lava all of the time. At various points in the history of the planet, those ruptures occur such that molten rock flows all over the surface of the planet. And four of the largest last 11 extinction events are all tied to when volcanoes erupt at the same time. 
Usually it eliminates somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of species on the planet. Uh, wow. On average, that happens every you know 17 to 30,000 years, and it's been over 36,000 years since the last one, so we're overdue. Overdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that should be occurring any time now. And essentially what will happen <laughs> is there will be so much carbon dioxide spewed into the atmosphere that it'll create a runaway greenhouse effect. And you can expect that all plants will die, including plankton in the waters. And that spells real trouble for the rest of us. Wow. <laughs> so... If you see volcanoes going off in chain sequences around the world, plant your apple tree. Don't bother <laughs> running. Don't bother planting an apple tree. No, no, right? that's you the just point. Told you us. plant the apple tree anyway. It's going to die. It doesn't matter. You keep doing the thing. Plant the apple tree. Throw the oh. starfish back in the water. That's right. It won't make a difference. But you just do it. So just carry on the way you're you're going about your life. Who cares about recycling? You're welcome. And where are the Thank super volcanoes? Uh, so this is the interesting thing, the right? Like they're, they're actually like chained together, right? You can find these various volcanoes at major junction points between tectonic plates. There are 19 tectonic, tectonic plates that we sort of move around on. So they shift a little bit, right? Um, but we're familiar with these areas. like So like the Ring of Fire uh, in uh, the Pacific uh, Pacific chains of islands. Um, and if you want like an example of like where this has occurred in history, um, India, like the entire subcontinent of Asia is just one large lava flow in terms of how it was produced. So that's the scale and size of which we're talking. All of these volcanoes erupting simultaneously, but yes, Yellowstone is a potential one. Although people don't think that that's actually there's some debated scientific evidence over whether or not it would be overdue for erupting. So, hmm. neat. Yeah, I don't like wow. it when Adam goes. <laughs> the Earth is weird. People are weird. Every, Everything is weird. weird. Everything's not awesome. And in the end of the day, <laughs> the horseshoe crab and the nautilus will keep going. I'm just saying, like, I, I feel like Kendra and I can really lean into the jingle bit here. Um, it's going to be it's good. It's going to be good. Yay. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Yeah. 